Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Today, we are continuing our series. We're actually finishing our series, The Hurt Church, and this has been a really interesting series, and with today... I think uh, it's funny how this message was prepared. Uh, I prepared this message early in the week, and it's with all of the different events that happened in the last couple of days. Um, it's amazing how it just kind of really lines up with what we're talking about today, which is divided we fall. Divided we fall. And I want to start off by sharing this scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13, it says, and this is Paul talking, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Quarrels among you. And now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am with Paul or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, the reason I wanted to start with this scripture is because so much of the church today is together, yet not united. Especially this Sunday, churches across the nation are gathering together and are completely divided within themselves because of their opinions and viewpoints, even on the recent uh, Roe versus Wade decision. We have so much strife and criticism of each other within the church. Whether it's openly or behind closed doors, we despise and we hate. I'm talking about believers. We are envious and we are jealous. We are critical and we are merciless. We are all of these things to our fellow believer our fellow believer. And while we have examined this month month about how much the church has been hurt by ideas of religion and and from toxic leaders, today we're going to specifically talk about how the church has consistently hurt itself. Normal church people against normal church people. And my heart in this message is to show us that we are all different. Each one of us is different. And we are not called to be clones of one another. We're not called to be exactly alike. But with all of the differences, we are called to unite, to collaborate, and to love one another. When you look at even the 12 disciples, each one of them had really critically different ideas from each other. That's why they, were const- they would constantly quarrel with one another about who was the greatest because they were all so different and had their ideas of what qualities and values mattered most. And, and I want us to remember that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And I believe that in the church, we often love those who are like us. We love those who are like us. We love those who think like us. We love those who agree with us. 
What credit is that for us? We as a church need to mature and we need to learn how to celebrate each other's differences instead of criticize and demonize them. Y'all feel what I'm saying? So I want us to start by examining scripture from the book of James. The book of James. And James is a very unique book in the fact that it, it is commonly looked at as a book of a pastor's heart towards the church. It, and James, this is not James, the brother of John. This is actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. It start, we're going to start off in chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes comes also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? It then says, skipping down to verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. With our first point today, we're going to talk about how everyone matters. Everyone matters. And this is actually a value of our church. It's one of our core values. Throughout history, we as people... I'm talking about the world now. We as people in our humanity have consistently fit people into assumptive places of value. We fit people into assumptive places of value, dependent on what job they hold or what past they have. We look at their current status or the past that they've had before. And the church is supposed to be a place of freedom from that. A freedom from that value system. A place where... Literally, the Bible shows instances of slaves and masters being in the same assembly, looking at each other equally. Yet it has become, the church has become another place for people to be labeled and assigned a community value number. A people we consider important and unimportant. I want us to just think about the times. Just think for a moment about the times that you've tried to butter up your own social resume your social status as you meet other people? How many times have you relabeled your, yourself? How many times have you over-explained your current job to sound more superior or elegant? To make people, to, to give this sense of impression. Think about the times that you made sure to add that you're going to be going back to school next semester, you're just taking a break off. Think about the times that 
you made it a point to say that you're going to finish your degree or that you made it a point to say that you're, you're actually looking for a better job or a better position. Think about the times that you, you had to feel within yourself that you had to say that you were growing your business, that you're just, uh, you're just getting started, but you're going to grow it just to be perceived as more successful by someone else. We have brought the social construct of the world into the church, and we have devalued people's worth in Christ by attaching them to the things that the world values. It's understandable to consider the past and current status when filling a position. I'm not saying that it is necessarily evil when considering things for like a job or, or for uh, something of that nature, but it should have no connotation when it comes to the acceptance and treatment of an individual. People shouldn't be treated differently because of how much money they seem to have. Many people have been isolated, looked down upon, and slandered simply because of this unbiblical form of human value analysis. Scripture tells us that God looks at the heart. Scripture consistently tells us that God looks at the heart, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we see consistently that God often calls forth those others considered losers and outcasts. And I want us to think about that term, loser, for a minute. It's a harsh term. And think about how many times we've considered others that kind of label based off of their, just our opinion or their opinion. God calls consistently, literally, those who were considered losers in Scripture in their time. The outcasts. The Bible is full of instances in which God exalted the humble and lowly of society and revealed himself to them rather than those who thought that they were important. To people like David, Zacchaeus, Ruth, Rahab, Gideon, Jephthah, Jeremiah, all of the disciples, outcasts, considered losers. The Pharisees, even after they walked with Jesus, considered the disciples losers. Think about how even just the birth of the chosen Messiah was revealed to a group of graveyard shift shepherds. Shepherds in that time were one of the lowest forms of work. And beyond that, a night shift group, that was the lowest of the low. And it says that God revealed the birth of Jesus Christ to a group of graveyard shift shepherds. It is a it powerfully, it all powerfully shows that God sees value in everyone. Everyone. Every single person is valuable, no matter their past or their current status. Every single person. This reminds me of a time that me and my wife, we fostered uh, some kids from our old church. And don't ask me why, uh, uh, a couple in their mid-twenties decided to foster kids. Um, but be that as it may, these kids were a rowdy bunch and their living situation was completely unstable. 
And so when me and my wife offered our home to them, we ended up taking care of them for several years. And I remember at the time feeling really passionately angry about the lack of action of, of other believers at the time. Other, other believers within the church, other believers that knew of the situation but that did nothing. Or that would just, with a straight face, say, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to pray for them. And it's like, they literally need to eat today. And I didn't understand why no one else had really stepped up. And it wasn't until one day when I ended up running into a person from the church and we still had the kids with us. And they were just, you know, really buttering me up, saying how proud they were of us for taking them in. And they went on and on about how much of a responsibility it was and how, how great of a task it was. And especially being so young and doing it. And then they started reminisce of when they first, uh, when they first knew me when I was still a teenager. And they reminisce about a time that they drove by and saw me picking up trash in an empty lot. It's just a day where I saw all this trash, like an abundance of unnecessary amount of trash in this empty lot. And I just pulled over and started picking up the trash because it was, it was just ne someone needed to do it. And God spoke to me and said, well, who are you? <laughs> Why don't you just go do it? And they, they were reminiscing about that day, about how they drove by and saw me picking up the trash and how no one else wanted to do it. And then they made a comparison about how the kids that we were taking care of were like that trash that no one wanted to take care of. And now, now I'm taking out the trash in a different way. And I remember just feeling really disturbed by the dialogue. I felt disgusted at the comparison. I felt angry. But it really made me realize how truly some people view others based on their circumstances less than human and it showed me that this is why so many people don't step up is this value system and while this may seem like an extreme example I believe that lesser instances are just as serious every instance that someone dehumanizes another person it is serious. And this way of thinking about others is not only unbiblical, but this passage in the book of James, he describes it as being evil. Have you ever thought to yourself, just simply by having a, a, a judgmental opinion like that, that you were actually being evil? Here James says it is evil to show that kind of favoritism. Think about how many times in the church, that someone that looks wealthy was treated nicer than someone that seemed ordinary. James says that's evil. It's evil. And if we were to take this seriously, it, the church must stop hurting itself by showing each individual that they have value and that they matter, no matter their past and no matter their current status. Now, let's continue further into this book by going to the next chapter. In James chapter 3, verse 13, it says, 
Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I want us to just highlight that real quick. Good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It, attrib it attributes a gentleness with someone that is wise. So it doesn't mean just because you know something that you go about uh, with a sword and trying to say it. So many Christians have often tried to share this, their wisdom in an obnoxious, I'm right and I'm only right, my way or the highway kind of way. And here it says to show wisdom in gentleness so that people could actually hear you rather than want to kill you. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Whoa, big, some big hits from James. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and free from hypocrisy. Does that, not, does that look like all of the arguments on Facebook and social media? Have, have all the arguments on social media the last couple days, has it seemed reasonable to you on behalf of the Christians? Has it seemed gentle? Has it seemed peace-loving? I've even been seeing Christians attacking other Christians for not saying any opinion about Roe versus Wade. I don't know how many times I would read a comment like, be aware of any pastors or churches that haven't said anything. You, we now know what they really are. Have you even brought anyone into Christ, like to Christ lately? Or are you just busy accusing your brothers and sisters? Gentle, peace-loving, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits. Why do our Christians not look like this? It goes on to say, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Why does it say you commit murder? Because hatred for your brother or sister without cause is murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this last part, come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Why is he saying all that? 
Is he saying it to just every Christian in general that we should mourn, weep, and etc.? No, he's saying it to this church because of the massive division within the church, because of the, the constant quarreling, because of the jealousy, because of all these conflicts unresolved. He's saying you should mourn and weep for how divided you are. Our next point is jealousy is demonic. Jealousy is demonic. Now I want to make a distinction. The Bible consistently says that God is jealous of us. This jealousy is different. There's two types of jealousy. Deserved jealousy and undeserved jealousy. Deserved jealousy would be equivalent of me married to my wife. She is my spouse. If she were to cheat on me, I have a right to jealousy because there's a price between us. We're, we're connected. But say, I just liked her. And she ended up getting with somebody else. And I was jealous. It's undeserved jealousy. There's no merit there. There's, y'all see what I'm saying? So when God is jealous of his people, it's because there's a, he is our creator. He, he not only is our creator, but there's a great cost that he's given for our salvation. It's earned. It's deserved jealousy. Now this undeserved jealousy that we're talking about is demonic. Because while belittling someone, which we just talked about, is the concept of putting down someone that you view as less than yourself, or, uh, or treating, belittling someone that you see as behind you in life, jealousy is the internal attack of someone that you perceive as ahead of you. And jealousy is much more apparent, it's much more around than it's usually talked about. So many people within the church are jealous, yet it's rarely ever talked about. Just as this verse suggests, people store jealousy in their hearts, but then hide it in their pride. No one wants to admit that they're really jealous. So we mask the jealousy with pride. Say, no, I'm not jealous, I just don't like them. See, we, we create these ideas and other excuses of why we have hatred towards someone when it's actually rooted in jealousy. And while we would normally take light to the subject of jealousy, this, this passage makes this dramatic assertion that this kind of jealousy is inspired by demons. You ever thought feeling jealous or envious was actually inspired by the devil? You just thought you were in a mood. And here the Bible is saying, no, that was, that was a demon trying to incite you with jealousy. See, the modern day church commonly covets, hates, and slanders from the heart of jealousy. But rather than addressing it, we focus on deeper truths. 52 steps on how God can bless you. We, we go into these obscene ideas within scripture rather than talking about this this blatant spiritual truth. We'd rather go deeper rather than looking at this huge plank in our eyes. So we focus on tedious ideas that sound super spiritual but edify no one. How many church services have you been to to where you felt completely unedified at the end of it? Where you don't even remember what was talked about because it was just all over the place and didn't really make sense and it was just all about bless me, bless you, bless me. God loves you. Let's get emotional. It, it has no edification, but it was so seemingly spiritual. God cares about the heart. So if jealousy 
produces all kinds of divisions. I've seen multiple church splits in my, my young history within churches. I've seen a lot of church splits. And nearly every church split was inspired by jealousy and every division within churches. I mean, I'm talking about there is a lot of division within churches. Not just against the, the senior pastor and associate pastor, but against sub-ministries too. Between youth ministry and worship ministry. Quarrels, division, jealousy. And this, these divisions, quarrels, toxic culture, where does this way of feeling or thinking come from? And I really believe that's based off of this form of ideology and perception. That is how you view yourself and how you view others. It boils down to that. How you view yourself and how you view others. And I feel like both are encompassed in, in the form of pride. The form of pride. And I think that the story of Lucifer paints it really vividly and perfectly. Because Lucifer, which means angel of light, he was the angel of light that led worship in heaven. But one day, he became jealous of the worship that he, would, that he led to God. And that jealousy that was formed in his pride, he became jealous and he coveted what was given to God for himself. And his pride made him feel exceptionally deserving. His pride made him feel entitled to that worship. And those feelings formed his ideology of self-deserving. To the point in which he manipulated one-third of the angels in heaven to rebel against God. Now, they are now banished from heaven. It, the way that Jesus describes it in the Gospels, it says, I saw Lucifer fall from heaven like lightning. That's how fast and how sharp that rebellion was shut down. And they're banished from heaven to roam the earth as they await judgment day to be sentenced to the lake of fire. See, that's the whole purpose of Lucifer, why he hates humanity, because he wanted to take with him the very thing which God cherished most humanity but when he caused humanity to sin in the way similar to how he sinned desiring to be like god god created forgiveness for humanity really pissed the devil off that's why he hates us that's why he wants to kill steal and destroy us because god invented forgiveness while he has none and think of it for a moment no, no the devil and demons are not in hell right now they roam the earth Everyone waits judgment day. But the pride, his pride formed the jealousy and the jealousy shaped his I deserve ideology. And he used that ideology to form a mob of people in order to attack the one that he felt was undeserving. That's key. It's not only that he felt that he was undeserving, but he saw God as undeserving. That's what jealousy does. And he, can, he got this mob to attack, and he wanted to take the very thing for himself. And the end result was a massive division and a mob of individuals who were forced to face the consequences of their actions that were led by a very jealous and power-hungry individual. Now, if I could sidestep for a minute, I, I really don't like politics. And like I've said before, I really feel like I'm 
after the last several years, I feel like I'm more of an anarchist than anything else. <laughs> but is this not the same method of every politician to motivate people by fear? Think about for a moment. Let's, let's just look at the simplicity of Democrats and Republicans. Do they not fear that if the other side gets in power, that's going to be the end of the world. It's going to be the end of the country. It's going to be the end of as we know it. And notice that both sides perpetuate that same fear. An extreme fear. And both sides promise that they'll fix everything if you vote for me. Do we not, do we not see that we have been divided strategically against one another to hate our brothers and sisters in this country by power-hungry, jealous politicians. And we carve out hate for an individual because of a way of thinking that they have, an opinion that they have. We give no room for conversation, no room for collaboration, not because we don't think that we can be reasonable, but because we have told, been told that there is no reason. We've been told by leaders that there is no collaboration, that we just have to only this way or no way. And even with the recent Roe versus Wade decision, I want to make it very abundantly clear that generally, this might be just my opinion, but hear me out. No politician really cares about that on either side. No politician really has to worry about any policies that they make because it doesn't affect them. It doesn't. But they use what normal people desire or are afraid of more so in order to control us. We, we really need to wake up and see that we should not be biting at each other's necks because it only gives politicians and leaders power that they should not have. Anyway, as a side note, that was extra credit stuff. Now, if you look under your seat, there's a voting card, a voting guide. <laughs> and it gives a step-by-step -step process of how to reinstitute a French Revolution style. No. <laughs> Just kidding. Not suggesting that at all. <laughs> Back to Lucifer, okay? Enough about politicians. Let's go, it's same genre, but let's talk about Lucifer specifically. His jealousy led to destruction, and it, and it was formed in, they don't deserve, I deserve. I deserve what they don't deserve. And this thought process is based in pride, and it shows these deeper layers of selfishness, but the truth is no one should have to prove that they are deserving. No one should have to prove to you or anyone else that they are deserving of what they have. The world perceives that the universe bends to serve you. Think about that for a moment. The universe teaches, the world teaches that the universe bends to serve you. And in turn, people bend to serve you. Jesus taught that the greatest among you should serve one another. So we have one perception that the entire world serves me, 
while Jesus says, you serve everyone else. I believe that one ideology takes while the other gives. One takes, the other gives. Jealousy is truly of this world and stems from our pride. The same very kind of pride that inspired Lucifer's rebellion. That is why James describes it as demonic. And just as this passage explains, the solution to jealousy is humility. The solution is humility. Humility says, I am undeserving and everything that I am given is a gift by mercy and grace. It's a flipped script. Humility says, other people are deserving everything that I have is a gift. While jealousy says, no one is deserving, only I. And humility is the most powerful tool against a hard and stubborn and jealous heart. It takes prayer, confession, and acknowledgement. Prayer, confession, and acknowledgement. A transparent heart. And I believe that this is why the Bible tells us to confess our sins to God. I've wondered that for years. Why does the Bible say to confess your sins to God? He already knows. <laughs> he knows everything. Why would I need to say it? Why do I need to confess myself to him? He knows. I believe that it's because when we consistently acknowledge our weaknesses, when we acknowledge our need of a Savior, it allows a constant practice of humility within our hearts. And it reminds us of God's mercy and grace. It is a, a humbling experience and practice to be able to talk to God and transparently share your weaknesses. But God exalts the humble. And it truly helps us in the way that we operate, in the way that we speak, in the way that we, we treat others. So with all of this, let's go into our last point. In James chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it says, Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges... His brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you judging your neighbor? Who knew that was in <laughs> Who knew that was in there? Who are you judging your neighbor? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. I'm jumping to the next chapter. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. In this last point, we're going to talk about how love is an action and a choice. The ending chapters of this letter from James is so powerful as he is speaking to the unity of the church. Remember, this whole, this whole book is talking, about a, is talking to a divided church as he is trying to prescribe unity. For years, I've only heard verses from this book taught individually as their own messages. Like this last verse, the prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Well, I've always heard that in like praying for your car. <laughs> 
praying for yourself, praying for things, material things, or even praying for spiritual things. Yeah, that too. But I've always heard verses only just picked out and taught individually. Here, when we look at it all coinciding, it is a beautiful message about unity within the church. Is that this divided church is a the divided church is a consistent theme throughout this whole letter, and he ends with giving this profoundly simple application. It's a very simple application. Pray for one another rather than gossip about one another. Pray for one another rather than gossip about one another. I want us to really unpack this because starting with James's call to not speak against one another, he connects gossip to this opinionated judgment. And he says, who are you to, to judge your neighbor? He literally says, who are you judging your neighbor? It is yet another reminder that all senses of superiority, because in order to judge your neighbor, you have to see yourself as judge. You have to see yourself as superior. And that's why he says, who is not the judge except the one, Jesus himself? Who are you to judge? You're not superior. And the superiority is rooted in pride. And it leads us to division within the body of Christ. We should strive to avoid disheartening talk about one another. And constantly push to see the best in our fellow believers. If there is genuinely something concerning about someone within the body of Christ, within the church, you should talk to them directly in gentleness, in authenticity, rather than spreading your concerned opinion to everyone else and staining their reputation. Did you know that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if you call your brother an idiot, you're in danger of the fires of hell. I'm like, I feel hot already. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've done that, but I sure hope that God doesn't count every word that I say. Oh, wait. <laughs> Bible says that he knows that to take hold of every idle word we say. See, it, the reason that it says these things is because the way that we talk can either cause division or bring about unity. And there are the, the powerful solution that James gives is to not talk about each other and to pray, with, to pray for one another. It says, confess your sins one another and pray for each other because the prayers of a righteous person availeth much. I've never saw that in the concept of for the very purpose of unity. He's saying, when you, when you confess to each other the jealousy that you have in your heart, the anger that you have in your heart, the, whatever it is, if you confess to one another the unjust emotions you feel towards somebody, and with the heart of unity, and pray for one another rather than talk about one another, great things can happen. What a, what a much more fitting ideology it's very practical it doesn't it's not doesn't sound like a deeper truth it sounds so ordinary so practical but we rather than 
we, we find this, even though this, we find this, this solution is incredibly simple, some would even describe this as a boring message, a boring idea to talk about unity within the church. And we want to just move on and talk about something deeper. Imagine for a moment of going up to the people you were just thinking negatively about and praying for them instead. And I'm talking about genuinely praying for someone. Imagine someone that you felt that, that unjust hatred for, that disliking for, that jealousy for, and going up to them and praying for God to bless them more than you. Oh, <laughs> ouch. But would that not be loving those who are hard to love? What Jesus told us? It's easy to love those who love us. What reward is there? But to love those who you hate, love those who you don't like. And James gave this as a prescription to an overwhelmingly divisive church. It was his prescription. This whole letter is a prescription of how to fix the conflicts, the quarrels, the jealousy, the division within the church. Stop talking smack and start praying for each other. That's literally just what he's saying. This is so very spiritual and practical at the same time. And the final beautiful takeaway from this ending of the passage is that it describes the potential of a judgment-free community in which people can transparently share their struggles. Imagine that. A community. So we're, not, we're not afraid of judgment from one another. We don't feel like anyone sees themselves as superior over me. But that we have this judgment-free community where we can share transparently our struggles and even our disagreements. Whoa. <laughs> disagreements? Think of how in that kind of spiritual unity how we can accomplish great things. See, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. But that kind of church is only something possible if each person would be willing to swallow their pride. If each person would be willing to swallow their pride and each person be able to see others as valuable and deserving. For yourself, to be seen as a vessel of grace and mercy. Imagine if we were to think that my purpose in life is to be a vessel of grace and mercy for others. It, should, it would take each person to take the responsibility to love their neighbor in actions. And even though that might sound like a big, a big idea, through Christ, all things are possible. But that being said, I want us to bow our heads and pray. And with every head bowed and eye closed, if you're here today, and for you, you have this pulling within your heart to make Jesus the Lord of your life, the Savior to your soul. Maybe at some point within this talk, You've been reflecting about how you're just used to church, but you've never really had a personal relationship with Jesus as a Savior. You're thinking about these, these ideas 
of hum- humility. These ideas of, of us in need of a Savior. And you've never made that kind of decision or choice yourself. With every head bowed and eye closed, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. I see your hands. So just there to yourself, I want you to have your own conversation with Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. What it's saying is that if you have your own conversation with Jesus and you have a genuine heart, you talk to him and acknowledge who he is, the son of God that died on the cross for the world's sins and rose from the dead. That that's all it takes to start a relationship with him. That's all it takes to start a journey with him. And repentance is just that. Is living one way in life by having a moment to where you turn to Jesus. Repentance literally means to change direction. And the very first step of that is seen in turning to Jesus. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can just simply talk to him yourself. Now as they're doing that, if you're here and you just feel this call within yourself to be a vessel of grace and mercy, to be a tool to institute unity within the church, and you just feel this passion rising up within you to love your neighbor, even those that you may not agree with, even those that you may not have liked, and you feel this this, pa- this newfound passion for unity within yourself. With every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. So God, right now I pray for each person here today. And I pray for the Holy Spirit to finish the work that has been started in each of our hearts. And I pray that you'd bring about a greater unity within our church and within the other churches of our city in our nation, that we would look at other churches with the heart of unity rather than division, that we would not be accusers of the brethren, but that we would be vessels of grace and mercy. We surrender to you, and we pray for you to do a greater work within us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.